The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. And even here in the U.S. since 2011, we've actually seen a decline in the incidence of healthcare-associated C. diff. So one loose stool is not enough. Uh, you would need to have at least two or three loose stools before you'd really suspect C. diff. Is that correct? Yeah, so at least three before okay. you actually suspect C. diff. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's podcast is based upon an article from the In the Clinic section of the Annals of Internal Medicine. The topic is Clostridioides difficile infection. The authors are Alice Gu and Preetha Cuddy. The article appears in the October 18, 2018 issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Both authors work at the CDC and participated in this podcast. Dr. Alice Gu is a U.S. Public Health Service Medical Officer in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. She is board certified in internal medicine and infectious diseases and leads the surveillance for Clostridioides difficile infection conducted through the CDC's Emerging Infections Program. Dr. Preetha Cuddy is a medical epidemiologist in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She is trained in internal medicine and is the lead for the Clostridioides difficile infection prevention at CDC. She is interested in all things infectious, especially the who, the why, and the how. I believe you will really enjoy this conversation and learn a great deal about the current status of C. diff infections. Well, Alice and Preeta, thank you so much uh, for joining me on this podcast. C. diff is such an important topic, extremely important in the hospital, but as your wonderful article in the clinic documents, it's something that uh, outpatient physicians uh, see quite often also. Alice, could you just tell the audience the sections that you'll be answering most of the questions on, and then Preeta, you go ahead after her. Sure. Thanks, Bob. So I will be discussing briefly the epidemiology of C. diff and then touch upon some diagnostic issues as well as the updated guidelines for treatment. This is Preeta, and I'll be talking about the prevention of C. diff, including antibiotic stewardship and some of the other options or interventions that we can offer. Well, as I read this article and thought about it, and since I do a lot of inpatient work, I've seen quite a few patients with C. diff. The article starts out with a very nice discussion of the epidemiology. And Alice, if you could sort of go over how that epidemiology has changed over the recent time, especially community-acquired disease versus disease that we often induce in the hospital. Sure, I'd be happy to. So just to provide a little bit of background, so since the early 2000s, C. diff infection has increased in incidence to become the most common healthcare-associated infection. We think the increased incidence as well as the increased severity and mortality associated with C. diff infections 
may be largely explained by the emergence of the epidemic strain known as ribotype 027, which first emerged in North America in the early 2000s and has since spread to the rest of the world. Now, what's unique about ribotype 027 is that not only does it produce more toxins than other strains, but it also has high level fluoroquinolone resistance. We think that widespread fluoroquinolone use may have led to its spread. And interestingly, in England, since the late 2000s, they've seen a dramatic decrease in the incidence of C. diff infection following a national restriction of fluoroquinolone use. Now, at the same time, they also saw a decrease in the prevalence of ribotype 027, which they think is in part due to decrease for quinolone use. And even here in the U.S. since 2011, we've actually seen a decline in the incidence of healthcare-associated C. diff. And there may be several contributing factors to that decline, but we think one possible reason may decline the prevalence of healthcare-associated ribotype 027 in recent years, which in part might be due to overall decreased quinolone use. But I also want to mention that even though we typically think of C. diff infection as a healthcare-associated infection, we know that community-associated C. diff infection can also occur. And these are C. diff infections that occur in people who do not or did not have any inpatient health exposure in the prior 12 weeks. And based on data reported to CDC's Emerging Infections Program, which conducts population-based surveillance for C. diff infection in 10 states, the incidence of community-associated C. diff infection is not declining like it is with healthcare-associated C. diff. But however, in terms of risk factors, similar to healthcare-associated C. diff infection, recent antibiotic use is also a primary risk factor for community-associated C. diff. A little over 60% of community-associated cases report having recent antibiotic use, and approximately 80% of community-associated cases have had recent outpatient healthcare exposure. A small fraction of community-associated cases not had any antibiotic or outpatient healthcare exposure. So it is possible there are other unidentified risk factors or community sources of C. diff. So as both inpatient and outpatient physicians, what should we be doing to try to minimize the number of patients who develop C. diff diarrhea? I think one of the most important things to think about is the antibiotics, like Alice mentioned, you know, nearly all antibiotics increase the risk of C. diff infection. But there are a few that are really important that we should focus on. They are fluoroquinolones, third and fourth generation cephalosporins, and clindamycin that we've seen in healthcare-associated C. diff. While in the community, it's almost the same um, suspects such as cephalosporins, fluoroquinolones, and then some of the other medications such as beta-lactam or beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations. So these are some of the main or primary risk factors for CDI. It's very important that as clinicians treat their patients or you know, provide these antibiotics to the patients that they should think more whether the patient really needs these medicines or not. So that's the biggest one that we focus on. I don't know if this is urban legend or not, but some people have said that when you have to use these high-risk antibiotics, that having patients uh, eat yogurt a couple times a day as a type of probiotic might be helpful. Is that just urban myth? Probably at present, yes. Um, I think the jury is still out there whether they are good or not or whether they're helpful or not. So I think until we really, really know exactly how the probiotics would be helpful, I think we would say that the jury is still out there. Perhaps it's like my mother's chicken soup. It may not help, but it probably wouldn't hurt. 
Antibiotic stewardship is a very big thing, and it's something that I worry about every day when I'm on uh, service in the hospital. One of the things that's been very exciting to me is many studies that show we don't need to give antibiotics as long as we've traditionally given them for many diagnoses. Community-acquired pneumonia is a great example. Does duration of antibiotics correlate with the development of C. diff, and is this type of antibiotic stewardship something that will help us? So the shortening of duration of antibiotic therapy to the minimum effective duration is very key to antibiotic stewardship strategy, irrespective of which healthcare setting you look at. But the current studies that we have out there haven't really looked into that, for, but clearly for C. diff. And we really need to have very high quality studies that you know are designed to answer such questions. I think some of the important key questions that a clinician should keep in mind is, should the patient receive an antibiotic? If yes, is that the right antibiotic to give them? It just does not end there in terms of, you know, okay, now we've prescribed an antibiotic, but actually follow up and try to understand if the patient is doing well on those antibiotics. And if a patient is admitted at the time of discharge, they should do a reassessment of the antibiotic. We could go one step further and actually educate the patients about the antibiotics and, you know, the possibility of diarrhea. So some things to keep in mind for a clinician who when seeing a patient. As you mentioned in your article, and as I mentioned on rounds almost every day, routine hand hygiene is uh, very important in trying to prevent any uh, nosocomial infections. Should our hand hygiene change after a diagnosis? I thought I really knew the answer until I read your article. So hand hygiene, whenever you have a patient... You should always wash your hands before and after you see the patient, especially if the patient has diarrhea. We should continue to use hand hygiene. You know, as the 2017 clinical practice guidelines, in a routine or endemic setting, a performing hand hygiene before and after contact with the patient with CDI is very important, even after removing gloves. So just wearing gloves not provide that protection to you. You should perform hand hygiene after you see a patient with CDI. But in an outbreak setting where you have multiple outbreaks, or in case in our patient clinic, you're seeing a lot of community cases of CDI, you know, the best hand hygiene would be soap and water to just improve the, you know, the scrubbing of the hands or just rubbing against each other will actually help remove the spores if that's exposed. But of course, you know, gloves have uh, really good evidence in terms of prevention transmission. So if I know the patient has C. diff and I wear gloves, the soap and water is not as important as the gloves. So the gloves is really important because that has really shown grade three evidence in terms of restricting transmission. I think just because we wear gloves, there's a certain sense of feeling we are secure and, you know, we are not exposed to it. So while gloves are removed, one must wash their hands either with soap and water. If they're seeing a quite a number of patients or even alcohol, hand hygiene would, you know, proceeds would help. Great. Now, one of the things that comes up a lot, and I really like that you address this in the article, is which patients should we send stools for C. diff? And I get patients admitted to me and they say they had diarrhea before they came in the hospital and somebody orders C. diff and they don't have any bowel movements for two days. What is the clinical situation in which we should actually send stool samples to test for C. diff? 
So C. diff infection should be considered in patients who have diarrhea. That is, as per defined in our guidelines, it's at least three loose stools or greater than or equal to three loose stools in 24 hours with or without abdominal pain, especially if they have a recognized risk factor, including recent antibiotic use, hospitalization, or advanced stage. And if they have no obvious alternative diagnosis, such as, you know, the use of laxatives in the past 48 hours. So in such situations, um, C. diff testing is pertinent. So one loose stool is not enough. Uh, you would need to have at least two or three loose stools before you'd really suspect C. diff. Is that correct? Yeah, so at least three before okay. you actually suspect C. diff. Great, because sometimes yeah. patients will have one loose stool, and uh, I've had nurses send off a C. diff on their own without letting us know, and then now we have the patient in isolation, and there was other good reasons. And I think some labs will not even test it unless... It is a loose stool, so a form, they won't even test a form stool. Is that correct? Yes, that is very much so. So one of you know, as one of the interventions um, that we look at is to ensure that the lab is testing unformed stools. So if they do get a form stool, you know, they have to think, okay, do we need to test its form stool? It's not unformed, so let's not test it. And that information can relate back to either the provider or the person who sent the mm -hmm. test. When I'm on service and we order C. diff testing, I don't think we choose the C. diff testing. I think the clinical pathology lab does do it. But if you're a hospitalist and you're concerned about C. diff testing in your hospital, what are the best ways to test for C. diff? And is there anything that, as a, an inpatient doc, I really ought to know about the types of tests? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I do want to mention that, you know, the type of test that's available for testing at your institution is going to vary by institution. And just for your listeners' awareness, based on data reported to CDC's National Healthcare Safety Network, as of 2017, approximately half of all U.S. hospitals currently use a nucleic acid amplification test, what we refer to as NAT, alone. And only about 20% of hospitals use a toxin aminoassay alone. And then about another 20% use like a multi-step testing algorithm, which uses a combination of either NAT and or um, toxin EIA. And so I think what your um, listeners should be aware of is that with increased use of NAT, which is more sensitive than other test methods and actually may be more likely than toxin assays to detect colonization and active infection, since it detects only the presence of the toxin gene rather than the toxin itself, that with the increase use that, there has been a growing emphasis on diagnostic stewardship to reduce inappropriate testing. So as Preeta had mentioned, if you have a patient who does not present with a clinical picture suggestive of seed of infection, so having a three loose stools in 24-hour period, and, um, you know, without the right factors, and if there's another reason why they may have diarrhea, then you really shouldn't be testing this patient to avoid unnecessary testing, especially with a very sensitive test like NAT that can detect colonization as well. So those are just the things to keep in mind as a practitioner. Great. Now, it seems like one of the most difficult things for me to do is keep up with the changing resistance and sensitivity of organisms. And I learned a great deal from reading your article about how resistance uh, to antibiotics has changed for C. diff. In 2019, if I get back a positive C. diff in a patient who has the right clinical picture, what's my first-line antibiotic choice? 
And then maybe we can talk a little bit about the costs of those and the benefits and risks of those costs. And what should we no longer use? The updated IDSA SHEA guidelines now recommend either oral vancomycin or fexamycin instead of metronidazole for treating an initial episode of C. diff, regardless of disease severity. So this is definitely a new change since the previous guidelines. And I think that, you know, the primary reason for this change is that there have been a few randomized control trials that found oral vancomycin to be superior to metronidazole for both mild and severe disease. Fadoxamycin has also been compared with oral vancomycin um, in a couple of randomized control trials, and it's also been found to be non-inferior to vancomycin. So for these reasons, um, oral vancomycin and fadoxamycin are now the first-line treatment for um, initial episode of C. diff. However, if either oral vancomycin or fadoxamycin is unavailable or contraindicated, then oral tenidazole may be used as alternative therapy for non-severe disease only. However, I think, as you've alluded to, the potential problem with this is that both oral vancomycin and fodoxamycin are more expensive than metronidazole, especially fodoxamycin. So, you know, it is possible that the high cost of these drugs relative to metronidazole may um, unfortunately limit its use among provider patients. And I think this is one area that, you know, we all have to kind of think about. It is a potential barrier. So you developed a very, very nice treatment strategy, a figure on page 10 of your article. I encourage listeners who take care of C. diff to make a copy of that and keep it with them so they'll know what to do. What do we do when they relapse? That's also a great question. You know, so for patients who have a second episode of C. diff, it depends on what was used to treat the initial episode. So in a patient who had previously received metronidazole, it's recommended that then for the second episode, they receive a 10-day course of oral vancomycin. If they were treated with oral vancomycin, then the updated guidelines recommend treating the second episode with a tapered pulse dose regimen of oral vancomycin. And in that figure that you um, mentioned, we provide an example of what a tapered and post dose regimen could look like. The other option is just to use a 10-day course of fadoxamycin. So one of the things that is exciting and unfortunately necessary is some people, it's very hard to get rid of C. diff. At what point do you think about uh, fecal, fecal microbiota transplantation and what kind of acceptance and success rate does this have with patients? The current guidelines recommend fecal microbiota transplantation, or what I refer to as FMT, for patients with more than two recurrent episodes of C. diff. That would mean more than three individual C. diff episodes. However, um, this is an active area of research, and I think as our understanding of the use of FMT continues to evolve, it possibly actually may be more widely used or recommended. Um, I feel like with every couple of months, there are new studies that come out about FMT and its possible efficacy. So I think it's definitely very exciting, and, and people are very eager to learn more about its use. Currently, data suggests that FMT is safe in the short term, but we do need lo more long-term outcome data to really know effects. I know at my hospitals, we have infectious disease specialists who run the, the FMT, and other places, it's a gastroenterologist who runs the FMT program, but I think that... If you're listening to this and uh, you don't know who in your institution 
has become an expert in this, I think it's really worthwhile to have someone that you can call when you're in these situations. So I think we've done a very nice job of covering the main things. If each of you could give your real take-home message for uh, practicing physicians, what are the biggest things that in your data you feel that we don't understand well enough that you really want to stress. So um, Alice, why don't you go first and, and then pass it on? Sure. So I think we have to be aware that local epidemiology is important. Understanding, you know, the use of antibiotics in your local institution, how that may drive the emergence of different C. diff strain types would be important. And I also want to, um, two more points to mention, it's just um, in terms of diagnostic, you know, testing for C. diff, it's really important to be aware that you as a provider can take great steps in reducing inappropriate testing because, you know, with any infection, you know, any antibiotic you give could also be harmful. So we don't want to be treating people for C. diff if they really don't have that infection. So be aware of the need to improve diagnostic leadership in your local um, institution. And then lastly, about treatment, um, you know, if you don't have time to read the whole article, at least refer to the figure in the article. Um, Bob mentioned it really outlines the updated treatment recommendations, which is a big change from previous guidelines. I would like to add, in addition to what Alice mentioned, you know, using antibiotics is really great and it's very important. We don't have that many antibiotics now. And so using antibiotics judiciously in your patients is very important. Always think about whether the antibiotic is needed and if it's if it is, is it appropriate? And then recess uh, the antibiotic use. Allison and Prita, I can't tell you how pleased I am with your ability to go through this and explain this in language that I think helps me a great deal as an inpatient physician, gives me more, even better understanding than reading the article. And the article's great in and of itself, but it's always nice to hear the authors explain it in such a beautiful way. I really appreciate you being on this podcast, and I think that the listeners will all appreciate your updated knowledge, knowing where we are in 2019, and being aware that this is always a moving field and that we have to keep up with it on a regular basis. Thank you all so much for participating. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This is a very interesting conversation that helped me a great deal. The first big point that I'd like to emphasize is to not over-test for C. diff. And also that toxin testing is better than gene testing. If you feel like you're getting too many false positives, check with your pathology department to see if they're doing toxin testing. The second big issue is that metronidazole is no longer considered first-line for therapy of C. diff. Now, cost considerations may drive you to doing metronidazole first in certain situations. Number three is that the treatment strategies in the figure on page 10 are outstanding to have as a reference. The fourth is that fecal microbiota transplantation is now being used on the third episode, but it may change over time, and with severe C. diff, we may be doing fecal microbiota transplantation earlier, depending upon the results of upcoming studies. 
And finally, we had a great conversation on the importance of antibiotic stewardship. I would ask you to emphasize two things. Number one, the shortest duration of antibiotics that is reasonable for your patient. And number two, the most targeted antibiotics that will treat the patient and trying to pick antibiotics that are less likely to cause C. diff. Thank you for listening to this episode. I think it's very, very valuable, and I appreciate all the listeners who are listening to Annals on Call. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.